Lord, we thank You for this privilege of gathering together in Your name. We don't take that for granted, Father. We thank You for all of the great things that You do in our lives as we've sung just a little bit ago. Thank You for Your majesty. Thank You for Your glory. Thank You for Your goodness. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your justice. Thank You that You are involved in our lives. That You care for us. That You take care of us. Thank You that You have given us Your Word so that we can understand who You are and more importantly understand what it is You would have us to do as a body of believers and as individual believers. Thank You for saving us. For sending Your Son Jesus Christ to Calvary's cross where He bore our sin in His body. that we might have victory over sin and death by putting our faith in Him. Not ourselves, not good works, not religious rituals, but in Jesus and Him alone. For those who were with us in the first service and are here in this service who may, may not have yet trusted Christ as Savior, we pray they would do that and not let the most important decision of their lives go for another minute. And for those of us who have known you for a short time or maybe for a long time, may we continue to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. May we continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for teaching us, guiding us, helping us to accomplish your will. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it? What started out with less than 100 people early in the book of Acts turned in to the numbers, incredible thousands upon thousands upon thousands who have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have been touched by the witness of those who belong to Christ. That's the story of the book of Acts. Now, by the way, do we have anybody here who's a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin? Anybody? You all are all from A&M? <laughs> no. <laughs> we didn't have anybody in the first service either. It kind of ruins my intro. <laughs> So here it goes. Let me explain it. <laughs> if you ever have watched a Big 12 football game or a Big 12 basketball game, somewhere along the way you saw a promo for UT and the UT's tagline, in fact, it's their signature motto is, what starts here changes the world. What starts here changes the world. Well, 
What made me think about that was thinking about the book of Acts. What started here in Acts chapter 1 changed the world. It certainly changed the world of the early church. In 30 years, which is the period of time that the book of Acts covers, in 30 years, the church went to from less than 100 people hiding out in Jerusalem, praying in Jerusalem, waiting in Jerusalem, empowered in Jerusalem, from less than 100 people to conquering the world of its day, the Roman Empire, and has continued to grow all through the centuries up to and including today. One writer put it this way, when the book of Acts opens, there are a little over 100 followers of the way, as Christianity was first called. By the end of Acts, there are thousands of Christians spanning from Judea, the birthplace of this movement, to Rome and beyond. So how is it that this small movement begun by an itinerant preacher from the backwaters of the Roman Empire could eventually grow into a worldwide movement? The answer is found in the book of Acts. That's the story of the book of Acts. Jesus' ministry didn't end at the crucifixion. Jesus' ministry didn't end at the resurrection. Jesus' ministry didn't end at the ascension. It continues right up to and including today through His disciples, that is you and me, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, have placed our faith in Him. It continues today through us in the power and enablement of the Holy Spirit. That which came into existence on the day of Pentecost that we'll get to when we get to Acts chapter 2. Remember, the story of the book of Acts is this. Jesus' work continues. Jesus' work continues through His disciples empowered by the Holy Spirit up to and including today. We studied the first couple of verses. If you'd look with me at Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. After His suffering, He showed Himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. As we mentioned last week, Acts is an extension of the book of Luke. In the words of Warren Wiersbe, the book of Luke tells us what Jesus began to do and to teach in His human body. The book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do and to teach through His spiritual body, the church. And Wiersbe reminds us that even today, even today, congregations can learn much about church life and ministry from this book of Acts. That's why I'd like to study it. That's why I wanted to get into the book of Acts and spend some time in the book of Acts. There's so much we can learn about church life. There's so much we can learn about ministry. 
from the book of Acts. In fact, it's in Acts chapter 1 that we find the one mission of the church. In Acts chapter 1, and we'll just barely get to it today, and we'll talk about it more next week. In Acts chapter 1, we find the one mission of the church. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago from Philippians chapter 3, we talked about the one thing that Paul desired to know Christ. To know Christ. Well, the one thing that you and I should desire as believers, <clears throat> as part of the church, as part of the ministry Jesus continues to do through us is to make Him known to the world. The Bible uses the word witness. Witness, to be His witness. That is our one mission as a church. Well, book of Acts continues what Luke was sharing with them about Jesus' life in the book of Luke. Stanley Toussaint, great teacher of the Word of God, he's in heaven today at Dallas Theological Seminary, said that the book of Acts shares how Jesus is working and teaching through His people. Shares how Jesus is working and teaching through His people. Acts is the record of the continuing acts of Jesus. Acts is an account of what Jesus continues to do and to teach. Well, in verse 4, we read on one occasion... Oh, by the way, He appeared uh, over... The Scripture tells us that He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. And I think I shared with you last week, I can't remember, but He appeared 10 times. We can identify in the Scripture, we can identify in the Epistle, the Gospels, and we can identify in the book of Acts 10 times that Jesus appeared to His disciples over those 40 days. So during those 10 times, Jesus was instructing the disciples. During those 10 times, Jesus was preparing the disciples. During those 10 appearances, Jesus was helping them to understand what would happen, helping them to understand that the Holy Spirit would come who was promised by God the Father, helping them to understand that if they were going to be effective in their ministry, they would have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If they were going to carry out the ministry that He had left to them, they would have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. His instructions are interesting. We're going to find out in verse 4 that He told them to wait. None of us likes to be told to wait, right? We'll talk a little about that in just a moment. None of us likes to be told to wait. Jesus tells His disciples to wait. Then later on in, in Acts chapter 1, He tells them that they are to witness. They are to wait. And then they are to witness. And then we find out in chapter 1 that as believers, we are to work while we watch for Jesus' second coming. So there's waiting, there's witnessing, and there is working 
and watching for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, on one occasion, verse 4, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I think I've shared with you over the last couple weeks one of the most unpopular words I think you and I encounter. One of the worst four-letter words in the English language is the word wait. The word wait. Just wait till your father comes home. Right? Ooh, I don't want to hear that. By the way, it's an awful thing for you moms to do the dads. (laughs) But that's another story. That's another sermon. (laughs) That's a sermon for another day. Uh, How about there'll be a 45-minute wait for your table? Yeah? You love that one, don't you? Yep. How about all our operators are busy? Your call is important to us. (laughs) Right? Right. I've heard that many, many times. I've listened through many of those one-sided conversations. All our operators are busy. Your call is important to us, but please wait on the line for the next available operator. None of us likes to wait. And yes, that's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples. They are to wait. They are to wait. William Barclay said this, the apostles were enjoined to wait on the coming of the Spirit. We would gain much power and courage and peace if we learn to wait. In the business of life, we need to learn to be still. They that wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, Isaiah said in chapter 40 and verse 31. Amidst life's surging activity, there must be time to receive. There are times when God purposely makes us wait. There are things that you and I can learn by waiting that we can learn in no other way. It's through waiting that we learn that God is faithful. It's through waiting that we learn that God's hand isn't shortened by time. It's through waiting that we learn that God will ultimately fulfill His promise to us. His will to us. Well, the disciples had to wait. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my Father promised. Now, what gift could he be talking about? Well, write these Scripture down. We don't have time to turn to these, but write these down. And they explain what Jesus is referring to here when he says, wait for the gift my Father promised. You'll find that in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. You'll find it in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 26. In John chapter 15, verse 26. In John chapter 16 and verse 7. The gift that the Father promised 
is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. They must wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk about what that means a little more today and a lot more as we go on through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. But for now, we're talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said to His disciples when He was explaining to them that He would have to go away, meaning He would have to be taken away in the first in death, then in resurrection, and then He'd be taken away in the ascension into heaven. And He said, unless I go, the Holy Spirit won't come. Unless I go, the Holy Spirit won't come. So they, the promise that the Father promised them was the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they would have to wait because if they were to try to witness without operating in the power and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they would make a mess of it. And you and I still make a mess of it today. When we forget that we need to be controlled by the Spirit and powered by the Spirit, in our witness. In our witness. Well, in verse 5, we read, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to introduce the ministries of the Spirit this morning, and we'll be talking more about those as we go through this study of Acts, but I want to talk about the ministries of the Spirit, not just the baptism of the Spirit, but in talking about them, we'll also talk about some specifics about the baptism of the Spirit. Now, there's a word I want you to write down and kind of remember. It's an acrostic, and it's the word ribs. Now, it's not the Tony Roma ribs. You know the restaurant I'm talking about? Okay, good. Maybe I should have said it's not Rudy's ribs. That's closer to home. <laughs> but I want you to remember the word ribs because it's a way to remember four primary ministries of the Holy Spirit. And there's something that these four primary ministries of the Holy Spirit have in common. Number one, they are not experiential. That is that they happen, but you don't feel them happen. They happen, but you don't feel them happen. Uh, secondly, they happen to every believer. These four ministries of the Spirit happen to every believer. Next, they happen to every believer regardless of their spiritual maturity regardless of them making some kind of commitment to the Lord, these four things happen to every believer at the moment of faith, at the moment they put their trust in Jesus Christ. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, these four things that have happened to you, whether you have felt them and you, you have not felt them, because they're not experienced, they happen and we believe they happen because the Scripture teaches that they happen. All right? Ribs. R-I-B-S is the way you can remember these four. The R stands for, anybody want to take a guess? Regeneration. 
regeneration, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 would be a passage if you want to write down some passages next to these. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That is the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again. We are made new. We are given spiritual animation, spiritual life. We previously were dead in our trespasses and sin. And the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are made new. We are given spiritual life. That's the new birth experience. John chapter 3 talks about being born again. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 talks about the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are born again. You are born again. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a new person in Christ. Fantastic. Fantastic. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what Paul said. The old has gone, the new has come. That's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's the first of these four ministries that happens at the moment of salvation and is not experienced in the sense that we feel it. The second is the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. The indwelling. I'm just, and I'm just giving you the key verses. There are many more verses behind these. But this is the key verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives at the moment of our faith. The moment we put our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our lives to indwell us forever. To indwell us forever. The ministry, the indwelling ministry. Now, that's one of the places where we see the major difference between the operation of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not come upon every believer. In the whole Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon individuals for a period of time to accomplish a particular ministry that God set apart for them to do. But believers in the Old Testament weren't indwelt from the moment of salvation permanently until the moment of their redemption as you and I are. That's a difference in the way the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament versus how the Holy Spirit operates in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit regenerates us, that is, gives us spiritual life. We're born again. The Holy Spirit indwells us, comes to live within us. The third work, the B of the acrostic ribs, is the one that Jesus is talking about here in Acts chapter 1. That's the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. And he says, John baptized with water, obviously water baptism, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, 
There are a few things we should understand about the word used here for baptism, the words in the New Testament used for baptism. They literally mean, their, their most basic meaning is to dip or to immerse. To dip or to immerse. That's the basic meaning of the words used. Words such as baptizo. It's what's behind the way that we baptize. When we baptize a person, we fully immerse them in the water. That's where the idea comes from. For the word means to dip or to immerse. A secondary meaning, but just as important, not secondary in importance, but a secondary meaning is to identify with to unite with or to join with. To identify with, to unite with, or to join with. Let me explain how you, the literal meaning then led to the figurative meaning of baptism. For instance, one of the ways, and, and if you've been to one of our baptisms, you have heard this explanation probably more than once. Uh, one of the ways this word is used it's used of dyeing cloth. Uh, in that day, purple dye was very valuable and very sought after. And you would use the word baptizo, you would use that to talk about the process of dyeing. What, what would happen of dyeing the cloth? What would happen? You take the undyed cloth, you put it into the purple dye, in the case of purple dye, you put it into the purple dye, when you pull it out, what does that cloth look like? It's now what? Purple. Why? Because it's identified with the dye. It's the dye has joined with the cloth. That's the idea. So you see, you're taking the cloth, you're dipping it in the dye, but when you pull it out, it's identified with the dye. It's identified. That's the idea, that's the literal meaning and the figurative meaning of the word baptizo. I was also used of dipping arrow tips into poison. The arrow would take on the identity of the poison. It would be then a poisoned arrow. So you take, you dip, you immerse the arrow, you immerse the cloth, the undyed cloth, and it takes on the identity. Well, that's the meaning behind baptism. Behind baptism, the idea is identification, to identify with, to unite with, to join with. Now, let's look at the key passage for the baptism of the Spirit, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. We'll start reading at verse 12 to give you the context so that we can understand what is this ministry of the baptism of the Spirit? What are we talking about here? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul writes, and I'm starting at verse 12 to get the context. Starting at verse 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. For, and here is the definition of baptism of the Spirit, for we were 
test. All, not a few, for we were at some time in the past all, not just a couple, baptized by one spirit into one body. What body is he talking about there in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14? The body of Christ, the church, the body of Christ. You see that in the context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. For we were, past, all baptized, not just a few, by one spirit into one body, the body of Christ, the church, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. The definition of the baptism of the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit, the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ, places us in the church. Places us in the body of Christ. Now, there's some significant things here that Paul said. If Paul can say we were all baptized, then he must be talking about some moment in the past that we all experience. Well, what moment is that? Well, it's the moment of salvation. The moment of salvation. That's the only thing that we could all share. That there was a moment in our lives, there was a time in our lives when we put our trust in Christ. You may know the date, you may not know the date. It's not important. You may know the period of time when you came to faith in Christ. We were all baptized. Paul has to be referring to the moment of salvation. Now I want you to notice something else. Paul said everybody. Now he's, he's writing to the Corinthian church. What do you know about the Corinthian church? Carnal. It's a carnal church. What else do we know about it? It was a sick church, yeah, that's true. It was sick. It was a sin-sick church. They had divisions within the church. I'm of this party, I'm of that party, I'm of this group, I'm of that, and I'm of the Christ group, so I'm the really holy one. That's, that's what they had going on in Corinth. They had divisions. Paul said to them, I could not speak to you as spiritual people because you're carnal. Because you have divisions. You have divisions. Corinthian church was a carnal church. It was a sinful church. I had a prof once tell us in one of our classes that when you take a new church, the first book you ought to study with the church is the book of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> because... Every disorder that can be found in the church is found in the church at Corinth. And therefore, you have an opportunity to hit them all right from the start. I don't know if that's good advice or not. <laughs> I don't know if I'd give a similar advice. It was a carnal church. It lived for the flesh. When you looked at their lives, you wouldn't have known they were believers in Jesus Christ. And yet Paul says of them, for we were all. Baptized. That puts the lie. That puts the lie to the teaching that's that's been about for about more than a hundred years, almost two hundred years, 
that the baptism of the Spirit is a second work of grace that follows salvation. It's when you really get serious or have a crisis experience with the Lord and you really dedicate your life to the Lord, then you're baptized with the Spirit. This puts the lie to that, folks. This puts the lie to that. Paul said to the most carnal church in the Bible, the Corinthian church, that they were all baptized by the Spirit. That is, placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism work of the Holy Spirit. Well, the fourth work, the S, we have ribs. Regeneration, indwelling, baptizing. The fourth work is the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> that's, a, that's a particularly interesting uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, the sealing ministry. It's where when we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is placed upon our lives as a seal, the way you would seal a letter in that day or you would seal a document in that day and you would take the, the seal, the ring, and, and impress an imprint on there, and no one but the person whom it was sent to could break the seal. Do you see the picture? You and I, the moment we came to faith in Jesus Christ, where the Holy Spirit was placed upon our lives as a seal, and no one can break that seal but God. Now let me give you some scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 and Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 tells us that we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now that's important because it means that we're not, the seal's not broken at some point along the way when we have a wrong thought or when we sin, the seal's broken, we lose our salvation, we got to start all over again. No. Paul said, you are sealed unto the day of redemption. In other words, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your redemption is secure. Your redemption is secure. The seal cannot be broken by anybody but God, and He won't. Because we are sealed, not till the next time we sin, but we are sealed unto the day when we are redeemed. That is when God calls us up into His presence. Well, that's Four works of the Holy Spirit. They happen at the moment of salvation. We don't feel them. They're one time only. Regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, sealing. Now there are a couple of ministries of the Holy Spirit that are repeated ministries. That is, they happen several times through our lifetime. One of those ministries is called the filling of the Spirit. That's Ephesians chapter 5 starting at about verse 15 and going through the the rest of that chapter. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I have heard all kinds of crazy definitions of that. 
what that means. Well, you can be half filled with the Spirit. You know, your needle goes to a third, just like a gas station, you pull in and you get filled up. That's not at all what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit's not a quantity. Well, then what is he talking about? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying, first of all, that you and I should not be under the control of any substance outside of ourselves, be it drugs, alcohol, or whatever. We should not be under the control or domination of anything outside of ourselves. <coughs> be not drunk with wine, whereas in the excess. What does wine do to a person? We've talked about this. I've shared this teaching with some of you before those of you who are new, this, this may be new to you. But what does alcohol do to a person? It takes over. Right? I've only seen a few truly drunk people in my life. And trust me, that's enough. That's enough. People who are so drunk that they can't walk. I remember one poor fellow just lurched from from side to side. Why? Because alcohol had taken over his body. Alcohol impairs your thinking. Alcohol causes you to have many aberrations in your life because you're under the control of a substance outside of yourself. So that helps us to understand. We're not talking about, when we're talking about the filling of the Spirit, we're not talking about a quantity. We're talking about that we are either controlled by the Spirit or we are not controlled by the Spirit. We are either controlled by the Spirit or we are not controlled by the Spirit. That's the meaning of the filling of the Spirit. So the question for us is, Am I under the control of the Spirit? Now, I, you can choose whatever word you like. I like the word dominate. Does the Spirit dominate? That speaks to me. Does the Spirit dominate my thoughts? Does the Spirit dominate my life? Does the Spirit dominate my decisions? You see, what the Holy Spirit does for us when we yield control to Him, when we allow Him to dominate us, Whatever the circumstances in our lives, whatever circumstances we find going on in our lives, then the Holy Spirit is there and able to direct us by the Word of God. That's why it's important to study the Word. When we are under the control of the Spirit, the Spirit will help us to apply the Word of God in the challenges of our lives, in the situations of our lives. That's the filling of the Spirit. And it's repeated. It's repeated. Because there are times when you and I step out of the control of the Spirit. We're no longer exercising the fruit of the Spirit. And we're allowing the flesh to dominate our lives. We're allowing the flesh to control our lives. So, the filling of the Spirit is a repeated act. When we come back, when we realize, you know, I'm not, I'm not walking in the Spirit. I'm not under the control of the Spirit. My thoughts 
are not under the control of the Spirit. My actions are not under the control of the Spirit. My words are not under the control of the Spirit. That's the filling of the Spirit. And we kneel before God, and it's not a bad, day, a bad thing to do to do this on a regular basis, to kneel before God and say, I want to be controlled by your Spirit. I want my thoughts, my life, my actions, my words to reflect your word. That's the filling of the Spirit. The other repeated work of the Spirit, and there's actually some controversy over this, so I won't spend much time on this. Some people believe that uh, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is to give us gifts, and some people believe that it's not a one gift for all life thing. That therefore the Holy Spirit can gift us at one time or in one situation or one period of our lives or in one church that we're a part of can gift us in one way and then gift us later in another way. I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know. There are some who believe that, that, that uh, gifting isn't once for all. There are others who believe that uh, when you come to faith in Christ, you're given a gift or gifts. We know that's true. Scripture teaches that over and over again. But uh, does he gift us in other ways later? Uh, I can't answer that. So the gifting of the Spirit may be repeated. It may not be repeated. Well, those are, those are ministries of the Holy Spirit. In the context, Jesus is saying here back in the book of Acts, he is reminding them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. By the way, I, I like this. I, I meant to share this with you. Um, what one writer said about the confusion. There's a lot of confusion, particularly over the baptism of the Spirit. On other gifts, on other uh, works of the Spirit as well, but particularly on the baptism. This writer said, confusion over baptism of the Spirit has been generated by drawing doctrine from events in Acts rather than from the teaching of the epistles. That's another way to say something I tried to impress upon you last week, so give me another chance to do that. And that is you never build doctrine on a transitional book. The book of Acts is a transitional book. The reason there's so much confusion about ministries of the Holy Spirit, and in particular the ministry of the baptism of the Spirit, the reason why there's so much confusion is because people are building doctrine on a transitional book. Instead of looking to the teaching epistles of the Bible. Well, so much for that. Verse 6, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now you might say he's talking about the baptism of the Spirit and all they can think about is the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom of Christ on earth. And you might be saying to yourself, well, where did that come from? Well, the reason for that is that they connected the Spirit's coming with the restored kingdom because the Old Testament did. <clears throat> Isaiah 32 Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 39, Joel 2, Zechariah chapter 12. I just want you to notice one thing. Jesus didn't correct them. Jesus didn't say, oh, you're, you're right, fellas. The kingdom is going to be a spiritual kingdom. There won't be a literal earthly kingdom. He didn't correct them. He just 
corrected the wrong focus they had, the wrong focus they had, there still will be a literal kingdom. He did not say that the kingdom would come spiritually rather than literally. The literal earthly kingdom, the millennial kingdom will come. But what Jesus is saying, that's not to be their focus. He tries to shift their focus to the need to be witnesses for Christ, to bring Christ's message to the world. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. The important thing, what Jesus is saying, is not curiosity about the future, but to be busy in the present. And then, the key verse, verse 8, but, when you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I just want to say one thing about that. We'll finish for today. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great teacher of the Word of God, said this, in the matter of the responsibility of the Christian soul and the Christian church, these are arresting words of this first chapter of Luke's second treatise. In them we have a revelation, and this is what I want you to hear and we'll expand on this next week. In them we have a revelation of her one mission and of the method by which she is to fulfill it. That mission is simply and inclusively that of making Christ known. Folks, that's your mission. That's my mission. That's the mission of this church. That should be the mission of all churches to make Christ known. And Morgan goes on to say, and the method by which it is to be accomplished is that of the witness of all her members. That is not just the professional staff, not just the, the part or full-time staff of the church. That's your mission. You don't just hire witnessing out to somebody. It's your mission. It's my mission. Let me leave you with this. The question, he says, by which we may persistently test ourselves is this. How far am I living, thinking, speaking, doing so that the Lord may be seen and heard and known? The measure in which every Christian soul is a living witness is a measure in which the Christian church is fulfilling her true purpose. If you and I aren't good representatives of Jesus Christ, we are not fulfilling the church's mission of witness. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, remind us that our mission is that of witness. To witness by our words, to witness by our lives, to witness in the choices we make, to witness in our lifestyles, to witness to those around us to the reality of Jesus Christ. And oh Lord, I, I just don't know in my lifetime a time when the people around us needed you more. A time when there's so much confusion. A time when there's so much anger. A time when the church has gotten off its one true mission and substituted so many lesser missions. Help us to be 
your witnesses to a desperate world. In Jesus' name, amen.